the thing is, it always gets people upset when it's a funny joke. And you can hear the audience laughing at an idea which you yourself may not agree with. That's when you get offended. Because you know that there are people agreeing with an idea that you don't agree with. If the joke was not funny, people don't laugh, they won't care. Because I see you did not manage to convince those people in the audience. But by having people laugh, laughter is a form of surrender. So the fact that this comedian, whoever he may be or she may be, has managed to convince an entire crowd to agree with his blasphemous idea or her blasphemous idea that scares people who are against the idea. And then they must comment, how can you say this? Hey everyone, welcome to episode 18 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Ling Ya, and today's guest is one of Malaysia's top stand-up comedians, Dr. Jason Leong. Now in case you were wondering, Jason is in fact a real doctor. He practiced for four and a half years during which he began to dabble in the world of stand-up comedy beginning with an open mic gig at Zook KL in 2010 before becoming the first Malaysian to win the 7th International Hong Kong Comedy Competition. He was a part of the Malaysian Association of Chinese Comedians, has performed at places like the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, New York's Gotham Comedy Club, and Hollywood's Laugh Factory, and also has a Netflix special called Hashtag Blessed. If you've ever wondered what Dr. Jason Leung was like as a child, how he made the transition from being a doctor to one of Malaysia's top comedians and the realities of being a stand-up comedian, then this is the episode for you. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I think as a kid, I like comedy. I like funny things. I was drawn naturally to funny things. My mom was subscribed to Reader's Digest. At the end of every serious story or article, there's like a filler where people write in their anecdotes and whatever. And I was always interested to read those instead of the actual serious articles. Then I've discovered laughter, the best medicine, and humor, all in a day's work. For all the joke segments, and I tend to read them first. So from a very young age, I was drawn to funny stuff, jokes, comedy, the kind but did it ever cross your mind that I want to make that my full-time job? Oh, no, no. In the beginning, no. Of course, in the beginning, I was the typical boy who studied hard, get into science stream and do something in the sciences, i.e. medicine. And how did medicine come about? Because I read that your parents didn't want you to do medicine because it's quite expensive, right? And you were the one pushing for it. It's not like they were pushing me to do medicine because, yes, like you say, it's, it's very expensive. I always liked the sciences. And I think from that point of view of a precocious child, medicine seems to be the pinnacle of the sciences. You get to help people. So I think that's what drew me into it. Once I finished my A-levels, I wanted to apply to medical school. And you went to Penang Medical College and you twinned with University College Dublin. Was it everything that you thought it would be? Yeah, I mean, medical school years were really interesting. Two and a half years in Dublin, two and a half years in Penang. So the two and a half years in Dublin were some of the best years of my life because there's a lot of freedom being in such a safe country. I met my future wife there. It was a very pleasant moment. It was fun to just worry about exams at the time. when that's the only worry you have. My first job was in Ireland. I worked as a waiter in an Irish pub called McSorley's in Renala, Dublin. Yeah, it was my first job. It paid quite well because the Irish people, they tip their waiters very generously. So we'll get paid like 7.65 euros an hour. That's minimum wage. And then on top of that, you get 
tip. So you can easily double your hourly wages with the tips. So yes, yes, uh, uh, good pay, very tiring work, but it's nice because you get to experience the Irish life because for the Irish people, the pubs and drinking is like the pulse of the Irish society. When you observe in the pubs, you're observing very keenly Irish life. I'm a teetotaler, so I never drink because I get very bad reactions to alcohol. I don't drink at all. So that was my two and a half years in Dublin. Also formative years because that's when I discovered my passion for traveling. Winter holidays, summer holidays, Easter holidays, or even a particularly long weekend, we'll travel outside of Dublin. And the best thing about Europe is that such a diverse range of countries within such a short distance. So we travel everywhere. I think we practically covered almost all of Europe. I think at the time as well, as students, you get the best discounts that you will never get after. Yeah, if you have an international student card, you go to certain cities, you get a student discount. Like they have the Euro Rail Pass or something where it's one flat fee, you get to ride on a train's unlimited amount. So yeah, it's a good time to be a student, good time to be 21, good time to travel. And that was just two and a half years. When we came back to Penang, it was a change of pace because we now have to see actual patients. That was our clinical years a rude awakening to the real vigors of clinical life in Malaysia. I remember one of the first patients I saw when I came back to Penang was this guy who, unfortunately, he was on a motorcycle. He somehow or other landed into a ditch, into a longkang, and the motorcycle exhaust landed on him while he laid there. So he had suffered like third degree burns, right, all the way into his muscle. So that was really gruesome. To see as a 21-year-old, like first time, wow, this is how bad it can get. And then from there onwards, it was non-stop. This clinical practice for two and a half years. Graduated. Then I worked for four and a half years in Penang. I think you were at Salayang Hospital. Then you were at a government health clinic as well. And during that time, you got your first open mic gig, as I understand it, in 2010 at Velvet Underground at Zook. How did that happen? So I've always liked stand-up comedy, of course, naturally. And my wife knew that I love stand-up comedy. My wife knew that I love to tell jokes also, of course. And then around 2010, there was a bunch of comedians from Malaysia. They were starting this group called the YCOM, which is Young Comedians of Malaysia. And there was a clip on YouTube where they were doing some stand-up or whatever. And then my wife looked at it. And then she looked at me and she said, Jason, you can definitely do better. I was like, wow, it'd be nice to try. And then I got wind of this open mic gig in Kuala Lumpur. At the time, there's only one open mic gig per month. It was at Velvet Underground, Zoop, uh, organized by Time Out KL, Comedy Thursdays. I think I Facebook message or email uh, Poon Chiho, who like was the booker for the nights. I was given a five-minute slot. And I remember I had to take two days off from work because I was working in Penang. So on the drive down four hours, it was during the drive because I drove down on the Thursday. The gig was on the Thursday night. It was during that drive that I formulated all the stories, all the jokes I wanted to tell went to the gig and I had five minutes. I did nine minutes, but the crowd liked it. So I think that was the most life-changing moment for me. I think it was in June 2010. Absolutely life-changing because after that, I decided I was going to do stand-up comedy and then I never looked back. And that was the time, 2010, when comedy was just coming to Malaysia, right? So the opportunities weren't that great. So how were you finding those stages for you to put yourself out there? Yeah, so in the very beginning, there were very few stages. And the thing about it is I'm kind of glad that I started comedy when the scene started. So it gave me lots of future opportunities. So Time Out KL was the only stand-up comedy show in KL at the time. And it's only once a month. Then this local outfit called Comedy Club KL. It's not actually a club, but it's a like a events company which started to do headline shows. 
in partnership with some people in Singapore. So what they do is they bring in like uh, international headliners from say Australia or the UK or the, or America. So they come out and they do a gig in Hong Kong and then Singapore and then Kuala Lumpur and then maybe Bangkok and then they fly back. So it's a nice loop. They did their shows also once a month. And slowly, other other shows start to creep in. At the time also, my second gig at Time Out KL Comedy Thursdays, Douglas Lim was headlining. And Douglas Lim saw me perform. He liked my stuff and he offered me a spot in his Malaysian Association of Chinese Comedians, the MACC annual shows. So I opened for them. So there was a whole other branch of opportunities. And I think I would say it's nice for me to see my personal growth in tandem or in parallel with the industry's growth. Now, if I can step out and say that Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur has the best stand-up comedy scene in the region. That's the region that includes Manila, Hong Kong, Singapore, Indonesia, Philippines. Yeah, and all these different comedy scenes grew in roughly the same rate as the rest of us. We are separate, but we grew together. So it's quite amazing to watch now. When you meant growth, do you mean like more people were becoming comedians or more people were also coming to the shows as well? Oh, both, 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 both. Yeah, more comedians coming up definitely. Now you have like anywhere between say 10 to 12 regular professional comedians and a whole bunch of new newcomers, newbies, rookies, open micers. Then there's another, another layer of regular performers who are about to become headliners in their own right. The scene has grown exponentially and also the audiences, my God, a lot of them are coming out to shows right now. And I would say with some degree of confidence that stand-up comedy is, I think, the best performing live show business-wise. As in like, you will find that most people would rather pay money to go and watch a stand-up comedy show as opposed to say a play or a musical, or a a local concert. I think it's also a lot to do with how the business of stand-up comedy is. It's like, stand-up comedy is so simple. You don't need a a huge stage, or a set, or multiple players banging on instruments, or a huge cast to coordinate. All you need is just one person, or a few fillers, with a microphone, and you're pretty much sorted. So with that kind of business model, I think it's very sustainable to do stand-up comedy. And uh, a lot of people are coming and supporting live stand-up comedy shows. So it's very nice to see. Was it lucrative even back then when you were just starting or do you feel like you had to sell yourself short just to get the gigs and put yourself out there? Oh, definitely. I think it was lucrative in the very beginning. I know. I mean, it started to become lucrative, but as more and more people wanted to come and watch stand-up comedy and as the industry grew and the demand grew, it became less of a struggle to make money from live shows. You know, all you need is some business acumen, how to market yourself, uh, sell your shows. And then you can make, I wouldn't say enough for a year, but pretty decent if you think about how long it takes to tour and all that. And you mentioned MACC earlier, is collaborations with other comedians, because I understand there were four of you in there. Is it a rare thing? Because you guys were together for almost a decade. Yeah, that's a sharp observation. It's very rare. Yes, indeed. It's rare, I think, because stand-up comedy is very individual in its execution at the end of the day it's just one person doing joke it's not like we are a band where you need all four components to be there to see the Beatles or to see like Maroon 5 you need all five of them there you know whereas stand-up comedy is just one after the other and I read that it takes you six months just to prepare for one show which is a lot of time yeah so material wise yes it may take that long and then the uh, the prep that goes with it the logistics so Douglas ran the whole show by himself originally 
he just wanted a way to do stand-up comedy and to show everybody that, hey, Douglas Lim can do stand-up comedy and now please hire him to perform at your corporate gig. So he priced the tickets really cheaply and because he didn't want to do it alone, so he brought along Poon Chi Ho and Kwa Jian Han to do it with him. So the tickets were dirt cheap. When we started, tickets could go all the way down to 30 ringgit per, per ticket. I personally feel that when you factor in how good the show was, for 30 ringgit, you get 90 minutes of four guys putting a lot of hard work, but it's way more than your money's worth. So slowly after that, the momentum built and a lot of people love the MACC because you get to see four Chinese guys with different styles of comedy in one show. But after a while, I, I like to say this to them, like the collective strength of the show was always more than the sum of our individual parts. Okay, So the fact that we all four of us combine, the reach is more than if we have done separately. But as the years go by, that became less and less so because now people want to see Jason Leong only or people want to see one hour of Douglas. People who like Douglas may not want to pay to see Chi Ho or Jen Han or Jason. And people who want to pay to watch Jen Han may not want to watch Jason or Chi Ho or Douglas. So in that respect, after 10 years, it was time to call it quits. Like it was time to stop. And after a while, I think we were also starting to use it as a crutch. Like, okay, every year, I'm going to do 20 minutes of new material and that's all I have for one year. When in fact, I would say it's best to have one new hour every year. Last year was our last show. It was a good time to stop and each one of us focus on our careers. Drawing back to when you first were joining MACC, I understand 2013 was quite an important year for you. Like there was the yes. 23rd of January 2013 event, which was very memorable. Could you yeah. share that? 2013, oh, that one, yes. Oh, I uh, <laughs> bombed badly at uh, this gig. Not just a bomb. It was a bomb where I did badly in between two other comedians. The first comedian did well. I bombed after that. And then the, the guy who came out after this completely killed it. So you can't say it was a crowd. It was just me. It was me, Jason Leong, doing a bad show. What made it tragically funny was the guy who got us the gig is a friend of ours. His name is Jay. So Jay got us this gig and it was Jay's friend's company. So right before we went on stage, we were having dinner and the friend came up to us and said, hey guys, if this gig goes well, I think I'm going to get a promotion, right? Just kind of joking about it, right? So I did badly. And after the show, because I did so badly, I remember the company's big boss was upset. The event company was upset because the event company kind of greenlit me to perform. Jay was upset. Jay's friend was upset. And the other two comedians were upset because I kind of stank the show. And I remember feeling so bad and nearly crying. And 23rd January is my birthday. So the biggest bomb of my life on my birthday. Till today, nothing has rivaled that bomb. And looking back, why do you think it was that? Was it because the jokes really weren't that good or just the audience wasn't suited? Well, I say I, you can't blame the audience because the other two comedians did well. It is definitely my material. After that, I went home. I, I tweaked it a little bit. Tried to become more friendly in my approach. And uh, since then, yeah, my betting average has improved. So that bomb was bound to happen. I'm glad it happened early on so that I could take stock. And I'm sure in the future, I'll bomb again and improve again further after that. What amazed me when I was doing the research was that you had this terrible thing that happened at the beginning of the year, but then the end of 2013, you decided to quit full time. So what was the thought process in terms of oh, yeah. deciding to jump? Mm, so at that time, rather one of the biggest highlights of the industry in the region at the time was doing this competition called the annual international hong kong comedy competition so the guy who ran it he ran it out of hong kong the price was quite good because you get forty thousand hong kong that's like almost twenty thousand malaysian ringgit but the more important price was you get a spot at gotham comedy club 
Laugh Factory in LA and the Acme Club in the Mississippi. Three rather prestigious stand-up comedy clubs in the US. So 2012, a friend of mine from Singapore, Rishi Budrani, he won the competition. And I was amazed like, wow, this guy is not funny and he still won. But, uh, <laughs> no, but I have to thank him for winning. Because he won, it made me go, oh, wow, means it's possible. And I know his set and that seven minutes he had because we each performed seven minutes. That seven minutes set he had was really tight and really good. So in 2013, I knew that I was going to join the year after. I don't know whether I was going to win, but I'm going to give it my best. And that was the September of 2013. So I bombed in January. So I had eight months to work on myself. And then <laughs> September <laughs> in my head, I hoped I was ready then. So quite a long gap. And I think what is more memorable is like I was actually working full-time at the time. I was working eight to five at the, the government clinic, Clinic Kesehatan Taman Medan. So I had to take leave to go to Hong Kong and perform. And yeah, you have to buy your own flight ticket to Hong Kong and find your own accommodation because there's no guarantee. So you win the prize in 2013, 2014, you get to travel. So I used the prize money to travel. I went with my wife, went to New York, went to LA and uh, yeah, it was great. And went to Vegas and it was eye-opening to see, oh, what stand-up comedy was like outside of Malaysia. And what was it like? Was it very different from Malaysian stand-up comedy? Oh, vastly. At the time, it was a much bigger pool of people, of talent, a much more intimidating industry. And the audiences, of course, were at the time were way ahead of Malaysian audiences in terms of appreciating the art form. And I think like you mentioned once before that it's actually the Western power that controls the comedy scene, right? So it's important to put yourself out there as well. Yeah. Currently, the biggest markets for stand-up comedy, the US, the UK, Australia, all very Anglo, very Western seats of power. The three most prestigious stand-up comedy festivals are the Edinburgh Comedy Festival, Just for Laughs in Montreal, and the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. All Anglo, white controlled. Like even Netflix head office is in LA. All the big names are from those areas. So yeah, it's important to try and tap into those markets. However, I think what's interesting is that the world or the industry will increasingly, albeit slowly turn its gaze towards Asia. Like right now, if you just do a bit of research into the Indian comedy market, as in from India, not Malaysian Indian, but the India stand-up comedy market, it is absolutely insane. Because of the sheer size of the population, you get so many more talented stand-up comedians and their growth is nigh exponential. I would say my peers, my contemporaries, they can have like, 2 million Twitter followers. Their reach is very vast and powerful. They can tour around the world just selling out theatres to Indian nationals across the world. They can come to Melbourne and sell out theatres. They go to London, sell out theatres. Go the whole year to America. And it's amazing to see their power and reach. And like I said, because it's so many people, a billion or more Indians, the stand-up comedians, the talent is awe-inspiring. So I predict that in the future... The Western powers of stand-up comedy will turn in invariably towards uh, more Asian performers. The guy who reviews the HBBC's Cook Rice segment, Uncle Roger, whose real name is Nigel Ng. There's another Apollo performing award-winning comedian in the UK called Phil Wang. And then, of course, we know Daily Show's Ronnie Cheng. These three assholes are all Malaysian, but they're all far-flung into the Western powers, the Western market. So I think I'm inspired by them because knowing that they can make it, they have opened the doors. It's like how Rishi has done it for me. Like someone from Southeast Asia can win the competition. And now I feel like a, a Malaysian, if you work hard enough, you can make it in London or in New York. Do you not feel that with 
internet as it is that you could reach that audience. But it's different, isn't it? Because a stand-up, you need a live audience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even right now, with my Netflix special being in 190 countries, I still don't get enough people in the UK or the US or in Australia to watch. It is mostly Malaysians who are everywhere who watches my stuff. So it's important to make your presence known. However, due to COVID, it's hard to travel now to all these countries and perform in those countries. So it's, it's going to be a bit tough. But one has to try. Like, no, it's no point being a big fish in a small pond. You have to swim out to the ocean once in a while. So back then in 2014, you were going to all these different places. Did you ever feel that pressure to be less Malaysian with your jokes? Because you're quite Malaysian, but you do contextualize for those who don't understand. So I remember when I was doing that competition in Hong Kong, after the show, someone said, hey, I'm from Singapore. It's nice to hear your Malaysian accent. It's great that you don't change your accent. And I had a thought about it. It's like, wow, I never thought of changing my accent. Although sometimes when I perform to non-Malaysians, I may speak a little slower or enunciate a bit clearer, but I don't intend on changing my approach. What I think is funny, I'll try and make it funny for them also. What is different is just the content. Like for my Netflix special, I did, I think, 10 to 15 minutes of Malaysian political jokes, which no one else out of Malaysia would understand, even less find funny. So I took it out from the special because no point. I wanted every joke in the special to have that freedom where you don't have to be Malaysian or live in Malaysia to find me funny. And I was wondering during that trip in 2014, was there any particularly memorable occasion that comes to mind? It's memorable because it's not memorable. So (laughs) I was doing my set at Gotham Comedy Club, finished my set. And Gotham Comedy Club is not just a comedy club. It's like a comedy club, but it's like a restaurant. There's a stage and there's little tables. Yeah, it's done in the vein of like the comedy store. I think the closest to come is the Sydney Comedy Store. I think it looks like that. So I, I finished my set. I sat down watching the show. And then I turned to my left and the left is the main door. I turned to my left and right there, standing at the door is Jerry Seinfeld. And my mind was blown because what the... Why? And the culture in stand-up comedy clubs in the US is that on any given day, any major headliner, even the likes of Jerry Seinfeld, can pop by and drop in unannounced, unmarketed, unplugged, and do a set for like 20 minutes right before the headliner comes on. And usually they will come and work on the star, practice their material. And that night was Jerry Seinfeld. And I was told that the week before was Louis C.K. and the, the, the week before was some guy named Jim Ross or something, I can't remember. Wow, so it's quite consistent. Yeah, so these big names will drop. And sometimes they don't, but sometimes they do. So, and Jerry Seinfeld was there. So he, he went on and did 20 minutes. And after he said, he just so casually goes, so any questions? And then one guy in the crowd goes, why are you here? Like, as in, why are you Jerry Seinfeld in the Gotham Comedy Club? You can sell out stadiums. And Jerry Seinfeld says, even at my level, I still have to work on my material, finding the next joke, polish my stuff. So, and then I thought, man, that's great. And then the same guy asks, what is your favorite joke? And Jerry Seinfeld says, oh, you know, I, I kind of like the one about the horse on the racetrack where you don't tell him it's a race. And then the guy in the audience goes, would you care to bust it out now? And this is a joke from many years ago. And Jerry Seinfeld performed it at the drop of a hat, beat for beat. I don't think he missed even a, a single punchline. And then after that, why is not memorable? Because I wanted to take a photo with him, but he already left. The bouncer says he doesn't do photos. Yeah, that was the thing. I remember hearing your story and I was very surprised that he asked the question, like any questions. Why would he say that? It doesn't seem to gel with the whole funny, get you laughing, and then you go, any questions? Yeah, because, no, because I think he already tried 20 minutes of new material. So he kind of felt proud of himself. Then he just casually goes on, just 
because you never know. I think this you never know by asking questions. You can mine some funny stuff. You never know. And he's quite different from like Stephen Colbert, right? Who would have like an, an entire army of writers writing for him, but he seems to be going around trying out. Hmm. I think they're doing different shows, but I don't know if Jerry Seinfeld doesn't have an army of writers. He may have because I've heard of stand-up comedians having writers help them. You know, as long as they make the joke their own, it's fine. Yeah, Stephen Colbert. That was another experience because I went to watch the taping of Stephen Colbert. Oh wow! The Colbert Report. Right before he it was announced, he got the Late Show, but this was the few last episodes, and it was great because the prep for the show was amazing. Because you have lots of people telling you, uh, "Keep your energy up." We have audio. We don't add in audio. What you give is what you get on the show. We need your support. We need your applause. We need your cheers. And right before they tape they get a stand-up comedian to come and like warm up the crowd, get them ready to laugh, tell jokes a little bit, make fun of the audience. Then after he's done, Stephen Colbert comes out and takes questions from the floor. Like, okay, anybody got any questions? And then they ask questions and he answers. The reason for it is to humanize himself before he goes behind the camera. And I remember because when he came out, he was full of energy. He high-fived all his staff and crew. He took all the questions. And then he sat on his chair to start the taping. And right before they go to tape, he looks at us and goes, uh, hey guys, have a great show. <laughs> and I thought that's really cool because usually we wish the performer have a great show, but he wishes the audience have a great show. I thought that was so cool. And the whole experience really cemented him as one of my heroes. Uh, and I hope one day I get to meet him in person. I also managed to watch the taping of Jon Stewart in New York and exactly the same format. Jon Stewart was himself making fun of political news and Stephen Colbert played a character who was an idiot Republican who is also named Stephen Colbert. It's very different shows. And what I learned from this experience was the amount of prep that they imposed on each episode is amazing. The whole experience is two hours, but the tipping is just half an hour. I realized that your first solo show happened in 2017. So was that like that whole period? It took you that long to feel that you were ready for doing those four nights? Yeah, ready as in I had one hour. And also ready in the sense that I have enough fan base to justify doing like three or four nights in PJ and making sure that it wasn't embarrassing like half field. And luckily it was sold out. I knew that the next day I had to top it. So ever since then, I make sure I have a new hour every year. I'm due to start writing for my next one. <laughs> <laughs> and how long does it normally take you to polish something up? Oh, it can take a few months actually. And even then, it never stops being polished. So even when I go on tour, the jokes are constantly improved on bit by bit, bit, bit by bit, bit by bit. Uh, one of the best examples is when I perform at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I do 22 shows, Tuesday to Sunday, every day. So once you have that muscle, you improve a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit. A bit. So by the end of that 22 shows, you have a very strong hour. Uh, even when I tape for my Netflix special, by the time I went to tape, I had performed the show 45 times already. And that was in 2018, right? When you yes. began. And I read that you put in your own money, 150000 just to tape it without any confirmation that Netflix or anyone would take it up. Nope. So I knew I wanted to be on Netflix. So Why Netflix though? Or it's the only platform that is worthy of my time because like other platforms have very limited reach. YouTube is free, so you won't get your money back. HBO wasn't in our region. Only Netflix had the reach and the prestige because Netflix is cornering the market for stand-up comedy. So that's why I knew I wanted to be on Netflix. I had no deal yet, but I thought, you know what? They don't come knocking on my door. I'm going to record my special, polish it up, 
and I'll knock on their doors. So that was the thinking, like that's the mindset. And where was that inspiration from that you would just do it and then try? There was another comedian called Gina Yashere who had a similar story where she was already a big name in the UK, but she wanted more. So she moved to LA and at the time, no one wanted to give her a special. So in her own words, she paid for the special, shot it herself. And then she managed to sell it to, I think, NBC or something. And then after that, she also managed to sell the next special to someone else. Now she has a 30-minute set on Netflix called Comedians Around the World or something. So yeah, that hustle taught me, you know what? I don't have to wait for people. I'm going to seize the day, shoot my special first, and then show it to you. And I think I'm the only comedian so far to have done that, to put up my money first. No one else has a product to show on Netflix. So I think that was my upper hand, But it wasn't an easy ride for you. I mean, you shot in 2018. It was only released in 2020. So what happened in that intervening period? In 2018, we tried to sell to Netflix via a local comedy promoter, but the deal didn't go through. I think they were not interested. And then 2019, I was producing two tours, so I just kind of gave up. And then 2020, MCO happened. So I was ready to put the stuff on YouTube. I almost pressed publish. I called my producer who produced the special me and said, hey, I'm going to put this on YouTube because we're not making any money out of this. So maybe by putting it on YouTube, you may get somewhere. And he gave me my blessing. And right after that phone call, I thought, you know, I still want to try one last time. So I called someone from Netflix Asia. They have an office in Singapore. This guy came to watch my show in 2018. I gave him two free tickets to watch me in Singapore. He liked the show. We became friends. And then he said, I asked him, what would it take to get me on Netflix? And then he goes, oh, we are now in a position to acquire finished products in Southeast Asia, do you have anything to show? And I said, yes, of course. So I sent a link and then two months later, the deal was sealed. Yeah, it was two years of just hoping and not, not giving up for the two years. And then I'm lucky it paid off. And was it a lucrative deal? Because I was reading Hollywood reporters saying that they would pay comics like 50 to 20 million for a one-hour special. That's for the likes of Ellen DeGeneres, uh, <laughs> Pal, maybe Ricky Gervais, Jerry Seinfeld. No, nowhere near that amount. No, nowhere near that amount. But I'm hoping that this will lead to other deals and other projects that I may get to work on with uh, Netflix. And how has the reception been for your Netflix show, which is called Hashtag Last? Yeah, so far it's been very good on social media. So I blast it all on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, even LinkedIn, Twitter. And I even had a media night where I invited some celebrities. Hannah Yeowen as well, I read. It's so cool to have, I'm going to name drop some people right now, name dropping, she famously, YB Hannah Yeo, YB Ong Ken Ming, Marina Mahate, Ambiga was there, Yuna, Elizabeth Tan, Joe Flito. Yeah, so they came and they liked it. So then they started spreading the word and a lot of people knew about it. And so far, the user reviews have been very overwhelmingly positive. Everyone seems to like it surprisingly a lot of singaporeans love my stuff not malaysians in singapore singaporeans so that's great a lot of love coming from down south another surprising thing was a lot of fans allowed their children to watch my special which is very liberal of them i would say <laughs> <laughs> despite the r8 yeah it's written there r-rated mature whatever foul language they still uh, so far especially on instagram a lot of people nowadays they like to watch something and then they put on insta stories Every day, I'm bombarded by Insta stories. And I thought, oh, okay. So it's been overwhelmingly positive, I think. Yeah. Amazing. And normally in COVID, everyone's like, oh, I'm so shocked. I can't believe this is happening. But I was looking through your body of work. You have done so much. 
And I was wondering, like, what was your first reaction to the lockdown, and how do you end up doing all these different things? Oh, okay. So luckily, this year I plan to slow things down a little bit because last year was a very busy year, two major tours. And then my wife gave birth. We entered 2020 with a three-month-old baby. So every year I do the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. So this year I really plan not to do the festival because it normally takes like a huge chunk of my calendar year. But this year I decided, no, okay, I'm going to take a break. Then when the lockdown happened, okay, I'm just going to go with the flow. But what started happening was I started doing this thing called the all-day show with no budget with Jason Leung because you know how I love the Daily Show with Stephen Colbert. I decided to do an all-day show because you can watch it all day with no budget. There's really no budget. I'm I'm everything. I'm the writer, researcher, the editor, the performer, the recorder. Everything I do myself. So that got a good response. Then I realized that a lot of people, they just want someone to talk about the bullshit that is happening in our country on a daily basis. And let me tell you, if you do a show with that premise, talk about the nonsense that is happening in our country, be it politically or socially, you'll never run out of material. Like, what am I going to talk about today? No, there is always going to be something. And if I do it like weekly, ah, oh, trust me, within five days, I have enough material for like one show. So that kept me going. And then throughout the MCO, as I became more and more bored, I thought I'm going to upload my clips on YouTube, my stand-up comedy clips, the one I shot in 2018. Mm-hmm. Let's try YouTube. Let's try Netflix. And then it, it became a reality. And I read from an interview that social media, you could do a joke that did really well in front of a live audience, but it doesn't have the same reaction online. Yeah, different context lah. Because when you perform in front of a live audience, they are there to watch and laugh. But when you have the clip out on social media, the people watching the clip, they may be having a bad day. They are in their office, in the car, or in the middle of traffic jam, or just came back from a long day at work. So they are not entirely in the mood to laugh. And then they see something that they don't like, and then they start picking on it. They tell their friends, "Look at this idiot!" And then the friends pile on. Mob mentality ensues. And then you get this kind of backlash. It's very different context. But by and large, by now it's normal as it's water off our backside. So you learn to just ignore it. It doesn't really matter because you don't know them anyway. Yeah. The thing is, it always gets people upset when it's a funny joke, and you can hear the audience laughing at an idea which you yourself may not agree with. That's when you get offended, because you know that there are people agreeing with an idea that you don't agree with. If the joke was not funny, people don't laugh. They won't care because I see you did not manage to convince those people in the audience. By by having people laugh, laughter is a form of surrender. So the fact that this comedian, whoever he may be or she may be, has managed to convince an entire crowd to agree with his blasphemous idea or her blasphemous idea, that scares people who are against the idea, and then they must comment, "How can you say this?" What has been the most contentious idea that you put forward? Oh, so many! Ah, eh? wow. <laughs> In stand up, I put a clip up where I said traditional doctors are bullshit. And then you get a whole gamut of people who agree with me, and then a whole other group of people who like, how dare you insult our ancestors? You are a disgrace to the Chinese culture. One day you will get a, a disease that only traditional Chinese medicine can cure. For which I say that that is like saying there is an economic crisis where only a feng shui master can solve. It's not going to happen. The idea of traditional medicine is so ingrained in a lot of people's minds. That to have someone call out the blatant bullshitness of it is very scary. So then they must lash out, you know. Like my father was cured by traditional Chinese medicine, when Western medicine couldn't, and it's all anecdotal, low, low, low-ranking evidence which will not hold water in any scientific journal. So 
after all you just and whatever like you, you continue believing i hope you don't get some very bad health effects from taking traditional chinese medicine but you do you lah do you ever feel that you have gone too far at times never really yeah okay so when i perform a joke on a stand up comedy stage i'm always 100% okay whatever i say if i do something at an open mic and it's not ready yet and people find offensive then that is my escape clause because i'm not ready to share this with the world yet but the moment i've gone through all the open mic shows and now i charge people money to buy a ticket to come and see me and i perform the joke all the jokes i perform i'm completely fine with i've never felt that oh i've gone too far because if i felt i've gone too far i will pull back and not do the joke in front of a live audience but the moment i'm ready to put my face on a poster come and see me i'm going to do the joke on stage i've never gone too far but i think especially in malaysia there are certain lines we can't cross like don't talk about the royals or stuff like that right so you just have to be we aware have, we have the four r's in the mainstream media that's unspoken and unwritten rule you can't touch about four r's royal race religion rosma this is back then <laughs> true it's true it existed so now there is some leeway you definitely can't joke about royalty you can joke about certain religions i think rosma is fair game right now <laughs> yeah but yeah there are still restrictions yes and what do you think is the future for you now well this year my plan was actually to spend a month in new york to do gigs obviously that can happen So hopefully next year fly to other countries and perform maybe London Dubai definitely New York LA and one of my other goals this year was to get into Just for Laughs Montreal uh Just for Laughs is a very prestigious stand up comedy festival all the big agents go there yeah you're right all the big agents it's so weird the network tv people from america will go to montreal for this festival and then they pick out their names who they like and then they fly back there it boggles my mind why there is no new york comedy festival it, it's just insane yeah i want to do it just for last montreal that's next year like and how about fight for gotcha which is happening this friday so gotcha call is this brand of prank calls that is made by the radio announcers at hits it must be at least 20 years all my friends to a man and woman have agreed that it's time for it to go it has outstayed its welcome and the the genesis of this was in february during the political crisis i put out a video saying that look i have the numbers to be prime minister this is my manifesto as prime minister i will enact legislation to make sure that radio dj's who make prank calls lose their citizenship so then arno from hits who does the prank calls He says, "You know what? This is this is very funny, but he's challenging us. So why not you, Ian, his partner, challenge me to a grappling match to see whether Gotcha stays or Gotcha goes?" I love how Arnold pushed Ian into the ring, not himself. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Arnold such a batu api, you know. So it'd be interesting. I love Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I've done it for many years, and I'm hoping that uh, with this fight, which will take place second of October, not only do I get to end Gotcha. But I get to show people what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is. It's a, it's a very beautiful and very useful martial art to have. And this is something that I encourage everyone to do. If you want to do one martial art which is for the sake of your health and self-defense, try Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It will change your world. And so there's so much that's written about you in the media. I wonder if there is one thing that you could share that no one knows about you. People till to this day they really don't know how scary the process of stand up comedy can be because they always see on the Netflix special which is like oh it's already all tried and tested so of course it's going to be funny 
or the shows that I put on. By the time I asked for the kind of buy ticket, I didn't know the show was going to be good. It's the lead up to it when you try jokes and they don't work. And of course, comedians we don't put up our failures, right? So they don't see our failures. But my God, sometimes you see a joke evolve from shit to gold. So I think a lot of people don't realize that. That's why till to this day, people always they trivialize stand up comedy. They're like, ah, oh, yeah, I so can do it. You know, yeah, just just tell jokes anymore. Just jokes anymore, right? Yeah, it's 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 one of the hardest forms of art doing stand up comedy. Because it looks easy, but my God, the amount of sweat and sometimes tears you go through to make a joke work, and that's why not a lot of people do stand-up comedy. Because stand-up comedy, when you try, your ego really gets bruised and battered. Why would you put yourself through this torture? There are other easier ways to make money. Why am I doing this bullshit? And there's also a reason why stand-up comedy is an art form of the masses. So. You never hear of this really rich, privileged guy or girl deciding. You know what? I'm going to do stand-up comedy. No, they don't have the ego for it. Their ego is too fragile. You need someone from the dirt, from the underground, with calloused hearts and roughened hands to do this. Because mummy's boy and girl from the cozy mansions, they come, they do one time, they get booed off stage, they'll never come back. So that's why it is an art form of the masses. Have you never felt like giving up? Well, I think when I born on my birthday, that was very close to giving up, of course. But I think that defined my character because I knew then and then that I wanted to do this. Because even at my lowest low, I was like, "No, I'm going to come back again. I'm going to conquer this stage. I'm going to come back to another gig and do do better." So that's why I knew that I wasn't going to give up easily. So I would say I've never come that close to giving up. But the closest was that 23rd January, 2013. And I wonder, you were saying there, like turning shit into gold. Can you remember an example of a shit that you turned into gold? Yeah, like the story about me using the telescope to get out of trouble. That's an example of a joke which I tried to do early on in my career, like mid twenty fourteen. Didn't really work, so I abandoned it because it's, like, it's somehow rather it just didn't get it to click. But once I became more comfortable on stage with more experience, then I tried the idea again with a different approach. Then it worked. What was the different approach, though? I think I was just more deliberate in the setup. Spend more time explaining than this telescope. I put it in my car. I use it traffic summonses. And I think the ending was also a bit different. In the current ending, he lets me go because I had put on jumper cables on my neck. In the first iteration, when I said with the telescope on my neck, I said, "Please let me go." There's a man whose heart has stopped in the emergency department. I have to go. And then the guy didn't believe me. Then I said, "Please." He's also. A Police officer, <laughs> and then the guy goes, "Oh, really?" Then he escorts me to the hospital, and then I don't know how to end the story, so that's why it kind of went flat. But like, <laughs> <laughs> quite different. Yeah. So that kind of evolution took. Yeah. There's one article that Jerry Seinfeld says that how uh, basically he was trying a joke which didn't work for many years, and then he said something about marriage like it's like playing chess, but the pieces are smoke and the board is water. Something like that, right? Something like that. But he didn't get the laughter. Then one year, many years after that, he finally gets it. When he does the joke, he does this: marriage is like playing chess, except that the pieces are smoke, and the board is water. This motion. Oh. It was too much work for the audience to get the board, so he had to draw it in the air with his hands. Something like that, which is so interesting because it took him years, Jerry Seinfeld, to get that. Instead of saying chess board. He has to say chessboard and do this. Kudos to him for trying all these different iterations just to find that. That's why 
stand-up is all about the lonely grind on the road. And for those who want to do stand-up, what is your advice for them? Definitely try first. It's one of the art forms where you just have to do it. You can't rehearse for it. You can't prepare for it. You can't audition for it. You just have to do it. Your first audition gig is already a stand-up comedy gig in front of a live audience. Nothing else in the world is doing it the first time. The first time you fly a plane is on a simulator, not an actual plane. The first time you do surgery is on a dummy or a virtual simulator and not on an actual patient who with blood and guts. Stand-up comedy is very different. The first time you do stand-up comedy, the first time you try it, it is stand-up comedy. So a lot of people ask me, hey, I want to try, where should I go? Just go and do it. Three minutes of material, go and do and perform. Die or not, never mind. Come and do it again and again. So that's one do it. And number two, you have to persevere. Like a lot of things in life, the reason why we, the regulars, the, the professionals are still in the business is just because we are stubborn. We just stayed with it. There are more talented people than us who have dropped out simply because their ego can't take it or they just want to do other things which are easier, nothing wrong, or they want to pursue other careers which make them more money. That's great. But to be a stand-up comedian, you have to earn the title and you got to stay with it. You're going to suck until you get good. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for your time. My pleasure. So I normally end with these questions. So the first yes. question is, do you feel that you have found your why? My why? Oh, yeah. I always count myself very lucky. And I've told this to my friends. I'm very lucky because I've figured out two major questions that everyone needs to figure out. And some never do. And some take a long time. But I figured out what I want. And I figured out who I am. These are very important things people need to figure out. And if you figure out early, that is great. And of course, the why comes easier when you know who you are and what you want. So I know that I want to be one of the best stand-up comedians that there is. Of course, it's a very lofty goal. But I know that if I aim for high goals, even if I miss it, I'm going to be somewhere up there. And to provide for my uh, family, stand-up comedy offers a, a very good work-life balance. I don't have to work as hard as my wife who's a doctor. <laughs> I, I used to be a doctor. I get to hang out with celebrities and the adrenaline rush of doing a good stand-up comedy gig is still one of the best feelings in the world. So yeah, I've definitely figured out my, my who, my what, what I want and my why. So yeah. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Phew, a legacy of laughter. <laughs> why not? That'd be great actually. Legacy of laughter. That sounds like a very cool title for a company. I think... Right now, I mean, I, I don't know what's my long-term legacy is, but I always look to the greats, like my heroes, like John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, Ricky Gervais, George Carlin, the best comedian that ever lived, and Dave Chappelle. So they all have a similar vein in that they speak truth to power. They call bullshit when they say bullshit. So I hope to be one of those comedians where... When I call out bullshit, people listen and they go, yeah, you're right. And I do it in a funny way. That's why I do shows like the all-day show with no budget because I get to be a very low-res, low-pixelated, unvarnished, backdoor, Chinese knockoff version of my heroes without all the jazz. That's the kind of legacy I want to pursue. Like, I don't think I have it to leave yet. Like I, can't, I, have not, I don't have the things to, hey, look at what I've done, but hopefully that's where I get to move forward to. Like. These are my heroes. And what do you think are the most important qualities a person should have to be a successful comedian? The qualities are not very different from if you want to be successful in any other things like perseverance, hard work, you know, never giving up. But more specifically, I think 
to be really successful, and I follow all the greats who have walked before me. As a stand-up comedian, we have to take risks. Not risks as in do risky material, but we have to be ready to fail. Okay, So it's very scary for a stand-up comedian to try new jokes and not get a laugh. It's very scary, but it's very necessary. Some of the best stand-up comedians, they are not even sure that their jokes will get a laugh, but they want to do that joke. They take risks, and sometimes these risks will pay off immensely. So it's important to take risks. And I've seen some comedians, they always stick to safe, guaranteed will laugh. They don't go into areas they're not comfortable with and they'll always stay within the same range of success. Whereas the really great comedians, they push the boundaries and they scare themselves in trying to be even funnier. Can you give some examples of those who are pushing the boundaries? Well, Louis C.K., I'm not saying that you should masturbate in front of women. He said that if I can bring audiences to a place where they don't normally laugh and I make them laugh, that means I have pushed the boundaries. Okay? Dave Chappelle, nowadays it's very common for comedians to be very PC. Dave Chappelle doesn't buy into that. He is not PC and he still gets people to laugh. Which other comedian can say, like, <laughs> like I don't have a problem with transgender people. I never have. But I just find that it's very funny. <laughs> I can't stop making jokes about them. It's a hilarious predicament. It touches a vein. It's not, not a lot of comedians will do that, but he does it. And I won't spoil a whole joke for you, but another hero of mine, Bill Burr, he did a joke, which I won't tell you what a joke is, but he starts with this line. He justifies it and it's not offensive by, by the end of the joke. Okay, you should watch uh, Bill Burr, Paper Tiger. The line goes, he starts, uh, what's hilarious about sexual assault? That's the line. That's the line. And then by the end of the whole bit, you will end up, yeah, actually, you're right. That is, you know, that's wow. That's, how do you do that? You know? And that's why they are at the top of the game because they've managed to, by over the years taking risks, they've reached a level where they've achieved mastery as opposed to someone who never takes risks. He waits near the shores, doesn't go into sea. You'll never be a great swimmer. And where do you think people can go to connect with you and find out more about what you're doing? Well, you can find me on social media. So Dr. Jason Leong, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and more importantly, to see some of my best work, go to Netflix and search for hashtag blessed or search my name, Jason Leong. 190 countries except China. Oh, no. <laughs> no, really. There's no Netflix in China. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. They're missing out. <laughs> and is there anything else that you'd like to share that we haven't shared yet? Nothing. That's all. Only I share the link to this podcast to your friends so that everyone can watch. Thank you so much, Jason, for your time. Okay, bye-bye. And that was the end of episode 18. The show notes can be found at sothisismywhy.com forward slash 18. This includes the transcript and links to everything we just talked about. Don't forget to check out Jason's latest Netflix special, Hashtag Blast. There's bound to be something for you, even if it's your first time being exposed to Malaysian humor. And in case you were wondering, Dr. Jason won his fight for gotcha battle against Ian. Yay! And don't forget to tune in again next Sunday, where we'll be meeting an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker and producer, where she will talk about her childhood, where she wanted to be one of the double mint twins, to hearing God's word to do a mission trip in Prague, and how that journey led her home to a position where she creates incredible documentary episodes that showcase the resilience of humankind, as well how she balances motherhood with her own business. It's a wonderful episode, and I look forward to seeing you then.